everyone has some fear of delegating, but what do you want to do? Do you want to be a a small business, you're going to be a big business. And if you want to be a big business, you got to scale, you got to delegate. You have to just get over that fear. And you get over the fear by being prepared and taking logical steps. Welcome, closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season two on sales. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actual insights to help you grow your property management empire. So whether you manage a hundred or a thousand units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I am talking with none other than Duke Dodson, owner of Dodson Property Management, which now manages over 4,000 units in the Richmond and Fredericksburg markets. In addition, Duke is a busy boy in the real estate market. He's doing a very active development in everything from apartments to ice cream shops to co-working spaces. Where will it stop? I don't know. We'll find out. He's a gifted hustler whose appetite for winning was refined during his previous career as a professional poker player. I think he's one of the sharpest self-made guys in the industry. And today we're going to talk to Duke about how he got started and built his company into what it is today. Welcome to the show, Duke. Thank you, man. That was the best intro I've ever had, probably. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, man, I'm genuinely excited to have you on. I've known you for a while. We've done some some business together. I have a lot of respect for, for what you're doing, man. So I want to start here. I want to kind of rewind the tape. I always like to start here. How did you get into business, period? Were you one of these guys growing up early on? in uh, middle school, high school that knew that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Did you kind of get pushed into it? Like, how did you get into business, period? Um, yeah, as a kid, I uh, I was pretty sure I wanted to start a business of some kind. I had the you know, proverbial lemonade stand. That didn't go too well. I started a, a car detailing business uh, when I was uh, between my junior and senior year of high school with my best friend in high school. Um, that went a little better. You know, I Got into sales through uh, between high school and college. I sold Cutco knives. You know, a lot of folks. Oh, love have, it! Have okay, so a combination of yeah. I always knew I wanted to do it. Uh, didn't know what I wanted to do, and that the stars kind of aligned in 2007 when I started the management company. Vector baby, that's a vector has has churned out a lot of hustlers. There's a certain profile that you have to have to actually succeed. Like, did you get anywhere? Were you able to to make a couple bones with with Vector, or did you get churned out? I did. I did decent. I um. Once I got through friends and family, I was kind of done with it and ready to go move on to college. And so priorities were, you know, weren't weren't quite there. But yeah, it was it was a really good experience. You know, the learning to sell at a young age, I think, is a great experience for anybody. All right, so go through college, study some things related to business. Eventually, start working for Wells Fargo. So still focused on early on. What did you did you get anything out of that experience at Wells Fargo that you took with you when you actually started your own business? I did, yeah. So my first job was a loan mortgage loan officer through Wells Fargo right out of college, and I learned about a little about the basics of real estate finance and. Uh, more importantly, I saw people buying and selling real estate, and I saw people making money doing so, so that it intrigued me, and that led to me studying 
uh, all parts of real estate investment uh, in much more detail. So yeah, it, it definitely uh, jump-started me because it jump-started my curiosity into the business. All right, so you smelled the money. Eventually, you stake your own claim. You start Dodson Property Management. I want to talk about what that was like early on because right now things look look great. It, I guess it's easy to gloss over that initial painful early grind. So one of the questions I have for you is how did you go about figuring out how to sell and refine that that process? Like were you strategic about sales from day one and feeling like that the sales process and the presentation was was really key? Was it an afterthought like it is for so many people who are obsessed on the operations and the service and feel like that the sales process is more just like kind of opening a brochure? Like what what was your sales mindset early on? Yeah, I think early on my sales process wasn't great, but I was thinking about it a lot. So early on, I put myself in the client's shoes early and often and put a lot of thought into how they perceive my company, how they perceive my service, um, what I can do to make their lives a little bit better and easier, uh, easier on the, the sales marketing sign-up process, easy throughout the management process. And so, yeah, so early on, we built every process with the client's experience in mind, including how we market our company and, and how we uh, pitch our company uh, to a prospective customer, sure. So how did you guys position? Was there any specific angle that, that you were, you're hoping people would uh, feel like that Dodson was different in regards to? What was the positioning of the brand? So early on, I, I didn't have any true property management experience, so I couldn't tout that as being the most experienced guy in town. You know, I didn't really want to be the cheapest, uh, but I, early on, I was probably towards the cheaper end. But it, what I, I guess, touted was uh, someone who loved real estate, loved being around it, loved talking about it, loved talking with investors love looking at deals. Um, and so playing around in those networking groups with like-minded folks, uh, my early, a lot of my early customers came through those, through those relationships, through, um, I guess a passion for real estate is how it started. But then once it progressed and became a real company, not just a, you know, uh, a guy in a, you know, more or less a property management hobby, I looked at the whole property management, uh, service that we give to clients and realize it's not that complicated. There's only about five or six real main processes. And so I looked at each one of those and said, what can we do better? You know, what, how can we lease a property better? How can we manage a property better? How can we get a maintenance issue fixed cheaper, quicker, better? Um, and all the way through reporting and how, what clients see and the experience they have, you know, when they get their statement and what the statement looks like. And, and if there's a problem, how they're notified and when they're notified. And so building the whole company with a client experience is something that we did early on that most back in the day, most mom and pop shops like us weren't doing. They uh, more or less were real estate guys that happened to do property management. If business came their way, they took it, but they didn't have a, real, a plan to go get it. And I think the, the public perceived them as haphazard and not uh, refined at all. Do you feel like the market is a lot more competitive now than it was in 2007? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think property management technology has helped a lot. I think when the market crash occurred and the market got flooded with rentals, that brought more property management companies to the market. Because of that, with just more people, more competition, everyone gets a little bit better. Um, and so people started views, viewing it as a real business and uh, put more time, energy into it and attracted more people, smarter people, better people to the industry. And so because of that, you know, the, uh, the, the level of competition has definitely increased. So early on, again, just getting to 100 units, that, that first 100 doors what was that? Was that 100% outbound prospecting? Did you do any marketing or how? I know you actively do marketing now. How large was the organization before you actually did any paid marketing or lead gen as opposed to just grinding it out through prospecting? Um, I don't know the exact date, but I know we really didn't spend any money on marketing for the first three years at least. Um, 
you know, we spent some money on networking groups maybe that, you know, I was part of, uh, but we did nothing that you would call marketing. No, nothing in print, nothing online. Uh, social media was barely a thing back then. And so, yeah, it was mostly networking, building relationships, building uh, relationships with realtors back then. And how many doors do you think you were at at the three-year mark? Uh, about 300. And I'm not sure we did a lot of marketing then either. It was still probably a couple of years later that we actually got into you know, any kind of social media campaigns. We dabbled in you know, some pay-per-clicks, but our SEO results ended up becoming mostly organic uh, in nature. And, and so we, we really didn't, to this day, I bet you we spend less in true marketing uh, costs than, than a lot of people do per door. Got it. So the bottom line is, like most companies, you ground it out through sheer force of will, prospecting, beat in the street, belly to belly contacts. That is what the vast majority of our clients do. One of the questions I have for you is, how would things be different in hindsight? The company operates very differently now than it did back then. If, if through some circumstance, all of your inventory got wiped out and you were starting back from scratch. How long do you think it would take to get to that initial 300 doors? I'm guessing it wouldn't be three years. And what would you do differently to, if anything, to acquire those 300 doors? Would you revert back to, to just hardcore prospecting or would you lean on, on paid advertising marketing? Like what would you do if you were going to do it again, knowing what you know now? Um, if, if I'm starting from scratch again and, but, but I also plan to be in the business for a while. I would put as much energy and time and money as it took into SEO to get me to the top there, which, which would not help you in year one probably or year two, but by year three, four, and five, hopefully all the time and energy that you put into it would be worth it. In addition to that, you know, if you have a big marketing budget, um, I think there's a lot of things you can do through social media that are very uh, beneficial. Um, however, if you don't have a big marketing budget, I think, you know, if you're starting from scratch, like I did just one person in a, in a dream, I think what you do have is time <laughs> and relationships. So nurturing existing relationships, but getting out there and, and networking in the right places to build those relationships. I, I think if you get a lead from referral, Hey, call dots, property management, they're the best. It's hard to lose that client, you know, and you probably won't unless you really screw it up. So I think doing a good job, um, and building relationships is still the best way. It's not the fastest way, but it, it's probably the best way. So you give that piece of advice to two different people and you have two radically different outcomes. The execution focus, getting into the weeds of actually building relationships, et cetera, is going to be the real differentiator. So if somebody was actually wanting to execute on that, because we hear things like build relationships with realtors or do networking events, et cetera. I feel like that that is common wisdom. But again, for one person that produces great results and for somebody else, they choke and they never get to 300 doors. How would you lean in to either uh, networking or the realtor relationships to truly get the maximal results? And that, I guess that's a good point too with, that you just made is I usually give advice based on what has worked for me. <laughs> and so if you are naturally good at building relationships, if you're likable, if you're responsive, if you're organized and professional and you, and you show up on time and things like that, then the relation, the networking relationship building will come a little easier for you than if you're not all of those things, which you can still succeed in business, but you need to probably market a different way. So that person probably should spend more time on uh, what you would call the traditional marketing methods, you know, these days, which means social media, pay-per-click, um, systematic methods where you're going to get X number of leads. You're going to close a certain percentage of those um, based on volume. So that advice may not work for everybody, depending on what you're good at and what you're not good at. You know, I'm not really even trying to make that point. For me, it's more about just recognizing that what you just talked about, about leaning into the prospecting, 
You have to find that disposition somewhere within your organization where you see people struggle is if you fundamentally have a bias against sales and you are not on some level willing to reconcile that it is it, you're you're going to choke you're going to suffer and life is going to be hard you could say i'm an introvert it's not going to be me but it's important i recognize it's a problem so i'm going to put somebody in that seat i'm going to train them and equip them but what i oftentimes see is for the person that doesn't have that kind of alpha type a gregarious disposition a lot of times they just lean back from it altogether and they want to throw another body into that void and have them go figure out and that never ends up Painting, painting out well. And so what I'm thinking about is, as I look at your organization now, the BDM structure, et cetera, it feels to me like your personality and disposition of prioritizing sales has kind of uh, led into how you've structured things. Because you've had BDMs for longer than BDMs have been a big thing that folks have been talking about, and they're actually succeeding versus now that that term is coming up. And I'm seeing a lot of clients that are really struggling and kind of churning through that. So on some level, I, I think it comes down to it being a culture issue. Agree? Absolutely. Yeah. I think you're naturally going to attract people that fit your, you know, your culture. And on day one, when you're one man band or one woman band, your culture is you, right? How you act and how you treat people and what your atmosphere of your office is like. And so you're naturally going to attract people that like that kind of atmosphere. So yeah, so if you are not a salesy person and you hate it, you'll have a little difficulty attracting that person. I don't think it's impossible, but it's certainly much easier if you buy into that uh, mindset right away. So how many doors were you at before you actually did try and make a sales hire? Sales hire, we, uh, we were about 300, but three years in, about 300 units is when we hired our first uh, director of business development. So you had plenty of bumps, bruises, and scars. You had already walked the walk when you hired that person. You weren't asking them to come in to do something you hadn't. That said, did you bridge the gap in terms of training? Because that's where we see some folks fall short. They're great on a guttural level, but they don't necessarily train well. How did you handle the training and onboarding process for your first BDM? You know, we did a lot of things by the seat of our pants, and we didn't have a traditional onboarding process like we do now with new hires. But um, I did put thought into it. I wanted the guy to do as I would do at a presentation. So I thought the best thing, you know, there's some, there was some classroom in the office, me working with them. Uh, the next step was for him to shadow me on the, my next 10 presentations. Um, and then the next step was we, we both go to the next 10 presentations. He'd do it. Me look over his shoulder. And once I was comfortable not going, then I would let him go. And then I would follow up afterwards with the client, get some feedback. And then eventually I was able to take the training wheels off and let him just do his thing. And it certainly wasn't perfect. He he had sales experience, but he did not have property management experience. So he would get hung up on some real estate related phrases and clauses and things that, you know, the client would want him to be comfortable with. And so, you know, his I would say his closing ratio, we didn't we didn't measure it well back then, but his, his closing ratio initially was lower than mine, but it got up there pretty quickly where he caught up to doing what I was doing. So when you brought him on, did you already have sufficient lead flow that you could keep him busy and you told him he was really just acting in an inbound capacity or did you set the expectation that there was going to need to be a lot of prospecting going on as well? Yeah, it was probably about a 50, 50. You know, we probably gave him on day one, he was getting about 50% of the leads. He would need to stay busy in his goals, but the other 50% he would need to dig up himself. Um, we did not have a strong SEO presence then we were trending there, but we weren't there yet. So yeah, so a lot, a lot of his job on day one was me introducing him to the networking groups that I was doing him to joining some more him going out back then he would have a goal of meet two new you know take two new realtors to coffee a week things like that so it was it was a lot of outbound 
How do you feel about having a salesperson do be responsible for both inbound and outbound? Do you think it's a good idea right now? Do you segment and have somebody just on inbound, outbound? What's your overall philosophy on kind of mixing the two within one person's role? Yeah, I think as a small business, sometimes you've got to make a person wear both hats and, it, and it's doable. It's not ideal. You know, the, the downsides are as the inbound leads are coming in, the person's out in the off, out in the field doing a presentation or two or networking. And so it might be three, four, six hours before they get back to the person and sometimes, or even the next day. And sometimes that's too long. So that's the downside. You know, when you're small, you really can't have two people. Um, and so you have to find a way to make it work in a perfect world. Yeah. I think if you were going to hire an out, outbound person, Versus an inbound person, you would you would hire two different people. It wouldn't be the same person necessarily. You can hire an inbound person and train them to become outbound. But you know, I, th- what I see in the inbound person is a person who's at his desk, his or her desk most of the time. They're dealing with a lot of leads. They're setting up lots of presentations. You know, using digital tools like you know, you know, your Lead Simple, for example, and calendar tools and things like that to make it really easy. But so that person needs is more about. Uh, being likable and organized and efficient and, and that kind of thing, right? Um, the outbound person then needs to be a little more of a, a hunter gatherer type, where he or she needs to go to you know go to networking events, walk up and shake hands with somebody, ask somebody to go to coffee, ask somebody to go to lunch, and that's you know that's, that's a different skill set. That's more that's more cutco knives <laughs> than it is uh, lim- right, right. lemonade stand. <laughs> So temperament wise, then if somebody is in that situation, you're right. This is, this is a super practical. We talk about the luxury of just hiring two guys, one inbound, one outbound, but for most people, that's not realistic. So if you are hiring somebody that's doing split roles like that, temperament wise, what do you look for? A little bit of both, or do you look for somebody that leans towards one or the other? Uh, yeah, so as, even at the size we are now, because uh, we're in multiple divisions, our single-family division manages about 1,450 units of, of our 4,000, and that single-family division still has one person, and he is more of an inbound person. Um, and the reason why, it's a little laziness on our part, but he gets enough leads. He doesn't need to go out and network much. He does go to some things after hours, but you know, my, my old person was going – to probably six events a week, and this guy's going to maybe two events a month. So it's much different scale as far as outbound networking. Um, so he is full, and he's busy, and, and growth is not our constraint. And so we haven't changed it. Um, but if you were gonna if you were gonna hire uh, one person to do both, you know they got they got to be a pretty good blend of organization and likability and you know gregariousness. I, I guess if they're gonna do both roles in and out. You know, they, they need to be able to do both. If they're going to suffer with one, our, our last person was more of the outbound type, really struggled with technology, really struggled with organization. And because of that, you, you start you start pissing some people off. You miss appointments, you're late, um, and that sets a bad tone. So uh, if, if they're going to do both roles, they need to be pretty good at both. If, you know, it, if in a perfect world, you would have one of each that's really good at what they do. Talk to me about the process of letting go. You just mentioned some screw-ups that happened through lack of organization, et cetera. Did you have some some cringe moments? Were you ever reticent to, to let go? Or did you hire, did you wait to hire at such a time to where you were just being forced to do it and you were just kind of forced to get over wanting to babysit the, the, the presentation process? So I think everyone has some fear of delegating, especially delegating the client initial contact and the client relationship, which is the hardest thing to let go. But yeah, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a, a, a small business or do you want to be a big business? And if you want to be a big business, you got to scale, you got to delegate. You have to just get over that fear. And you get over the fear by being prepared and taking logical steps. 
and being willing to deal with the consequences. So you hire the right person, hopefully. You train the right person, you know, train them in the right way, hopefully. Uh, you get them out there in the, in, the, in the marketplace, and hopefully they represent you well. Um, if, if they don't, you try to correct it, but you're going to have to live with, with some imperfection to make that handoff. The timing of when you hired somebody, you were already at 300 doors. I mean, it sounds like you were, you were, you were pretty busy as is. Yeah, so at 300 doors, you know, I was starting to get super busy with all the tasks I was doing, and I had to decide, you know, I could have stayed boutique and stayed smaller and increased my fees and, and uh, cut my worst third of my portfolio and just taking, you know, put one good client in and one, one bad client out and stayed at 300 units and become more profitable. But I, I didn't want to do that. So it was, yeah, by necessity, I had to delegate things. And the sales, the biz dev piece was the part I delegated last, uh, but I, I do not regret it at all <laughs> because the way I viewed it, um, I was pretty good at biz dev and I was doing it about 20 to 25% of my week. Um, so if I got somebody as good or better, even, even if they're 80% as good as me, but they're doing it 40 hours a week, they're going to have, they're going to have better results. It's just an, it's an, it's simple math. I want to circle back to what you just said that for you, your goal wasn't to be a boutique shop. You could have gone through that process of swapping out your bottom tier clients for higher tier clients, all the things that we're familiar with to kind of optimize on the inventory that you have. What for you caused you to not want to do that? Was Dotson, uh, was it like the, the long-term vehicle? Was it a means to an end? What compelled you to, to have real clarity around the fact that just having a highly profitable boutique shop was not where you wanted to be in five years? Um, it's, it's a lot of things. Uh, it was never much in question for me. I always wanted to grow a big company. Part of it was I have, you know, I've got income. I want to make more income than the average person. Now there's things I want to do. And so I needed to grow a big business in my mind to do that. Uh, part of it is I don't like staying the same. I like growth and I like new things. And so I didn't want to stay the same three or four or five person company my whole life. Um, the final part of it was like, I love real estate and I'm passionate about it. However, some of the tasks I get really tired of, like the first time I went to a biz dev appointment, I was so excited, a little nervous. By the hundredth, hundredth time, I was okay with it. By the three hundredth presentation, I was sick of it. Same thing with showing an apartment. Same thing with processing a rent check. Like all the tasks you do, I didn't want to be doing all those tasks when I was fifty and sixty years old. So uh, growth was the way to get there. And the final piece is, I want to be around people that want to grow. And I didn't want to work. No offense, with the same three or four or five people for the next thirty years. Um, because I, I don't want to work with people that want to stay the same. I want, I want to be around people that are interested in growth and new opportunities and, and growing their skill set and taking chances. And so uh, all those things led me to want to grow a big company. I love it. So this is a key trait that I see with entrepreneurs is the need to keep that edge sharp. You work hard, you set this vision, and you struggle and you grind and you finally achieve it. And what do you do? You flog yourself again with a new project, more ambition, et cetera. It's this, it's this like compulsive behavior of constantly needing to stay, to stay sharp. And I've seen that in what you're doing because it's, it's obvious with what you're doing with real estate development, acquisitions, et cetera. You're not even just growing this thing linearly. Like you're just, you're creating new units, ancillary business opportunities that presumably would be less viable had you not taken the path you had and just kept the shop small. Right. Absolutely. And, and one point to make is that, you know, people say serial entrepreneur and all and what you just described, and that can be a cool thing. It can be an exciting thing. It can also be a bad thing. If you have six businesses and they, they all suck, uh, that's worse than having one good business. And, my, and I, so I think as entrepreneurs, if you start one business and you like the process, you're going to want to do it again and again. And yeah, I call it the chase the shiny ball. 
complex. And so I have to constantly check myself to make sure the thing I'm getting into, is it a good idea? Is it going to distract me from the other stuff? And so my, my little kind of decision-making mechanism is like, hey, wh- what will it take me away from? And is that okay? Because if I, if I move away from single family management, is that in good hands? And in our shop, it is. We have a great guy that runs single family. So I, I can get out of that. I can get out of the weeds of that. And that, that, that unit won't suffer. Um, but for me, it also, it has to be somewhat connected. Like anything I do, has to be somewhat connected to the whole puzzle. So the, the co-working space concept I'm partner on, real estate development, um, you know, the commercial division, multifamily division, it's, it's all different things, but they all do work together and they all help each other. There's, there's some synergy in that, uh, you know, one plus one equals three. And if, if that's, that's not the case, I think it can be just a distraction. Like I, I don't, when I hear the term serial entrepreneur, I don't necessarily think it's a good term. I think a lot of times it's, it's, it's a bad thing. I like that. So you're drafting off of yourself. You're not starting hot dog right. stands or, or restaurants. <laughs> right. I'm with you on that. Before we go on, I do want to mention our show sponsor, the PM Growth Summit, which is happening at the end of January in 2018. If you consider yourself a growth-minded property management entrepreneur, if you're interested in leveling up your sales and marketing game, and if you want to go pro and network with other best-in-class entrepreneurs, you need to be at the PM Growth Summit. We truly bring in the best of the best, and you can get your ticket now by going to pmgrowsummit.com and using the coupon code JORDAN, that's J-O-R-D-A-N, to get $100 off your ticket. Duke, you spoke there last year. You were at the event in your mind why is it worth the while to outlay the time and the money to be present for events like this yeah i'll I'll give a a very easy shameless plug for that conference i'm not just saying it because you're on the phone but that's the best property manager conference i've ever been to and i think it simply the quality of the speaker quality of the content and the quality of the the fellow attendees so it's a smaller more concentrated group um you're super like-minded people but they're all, but they're bringing fresh ideas. So they're not like robots marching in line. It, it, it's you're bringing folks from across the country that are the best at the best. And you know, maybe I'm good at one part of the business, but I'm not as great at another. And there's folks there that will compliment that. And and I mean, the networking there, man, pretty powerful. You know, I met four or five folks there that I'd never met at another property manager conference, and we still stay in touch to this day, uh, exchanging ideas. And so, uh, anybody out there thinking about it, I promise you, it's it's worth the time and money to go to that. I love it. All right. Out of the mouth from somebody you can trust. So Duke, back to the art of the pitch. When you think about being belly to belly, something that you're not doing, you've, you've, you've worked your way up the food chain and out of that job. But when you think back to the art of the pitch, what your BDM is doing now, what you did a lot before you got to where you're at now, what do you think that most property managers don't understand or get wrong about the one-to-one sales dynamic? Going off script a little, back to my Cutco Knives days, like you learn the basic sales process, which I take for granted because I learned it when I was 18, but not everybody simply has, has learned it. But for the novice, you know, I, I would say go and get some basic sales training because you need to understand the psychology of selling and just the, the basic steps to it, you know, establishing credibility, uh, overcoming objections, asking for the sale, like the, those things that you learn it in cut, selling Cutco knives, um, they're, they're true in whether, whatever you're selling. But, you know, when you, you know, prepared me for this with the questions for this interview, what I said in those, uh, that kind of feedback there was most folks don't understand when the pitch starts. Um, they don't understand the customer experience of when they're the pitch starts before they ever sit down in front of you. And, and I think there, I've seen some studies now that they say 70, 80% of the time they've already decided before you even get there. So that means the pitch starts when they ask their friend about, you know, about your company and you as an individual, uh, how well you guys do at your job when they look at your website 
they're judging you. They'll get your logo and your business card when they come to your office, and your, if your office is a complete mess or if it looks if it's nice and neat and orderly. I mean, all of those things affect their perception of you and your service. Um, so they're they're judging. They're judging way before they get there. Um, but then, yeah, the other part is just is just having an organized sales pitch. I think again, our industry used to be dominated by mom and pop shops. Now there's quite a few large institutional folks that are bringing experienced people into the business from other industries. And so they're raising the bar. But I mean, give you an example. Seven years ago, my first biz dev guy, back then this flipbook was was new to us. And he went to a presentation, did his pitch, went great. 30 minutes presentation, went perfect. He comes out and he sees the next guy coming in to pitch uh, another uh, one of our competitors. And the guy simply has a contract and an ink pen behind his ear. And like nothing else, no marketing materials, no flipbook, no nothing. It, it just, the guy wasn't organized. Like he was, he was treating like a mom and pop shop. He wasn't treating it like a big business. And now, you know, that person is at a business. And so you're, you're not, you're not competing with jokers. Now you're competing with folks that they're in it to win it. <laughs> you you got to, you know, you got to constantly step your game up. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. The professionalization of sales, I think, tends to happen later. With any service, people tend to perfect the operational areas. And after there's some maturity in that regard, they then turn their gaze over to sales. And it's a slow process before eventually, eventually, there's actually a, a functional sales department, the professionalization of the process. But the reality is anybody can do that early on. Anybody can build out sales collateral. Anybody can practice their pitch. It's an assessment of what is the value of this function of my business with my overall goals of what I'm trying to do. Is sales, is marketing, does that function of my business deserve equal care, concern, and attention and treatment as my leasing process, et cetera? And you know, if you're focused on growth, the answer is yes. If you're not, the answer is no. So to some degree, it just kind of comes down to vision and values. I want to circle back to BDM compensation. You mentioned early on around 300 doors. You then transitioned to hiring your first BDM. Can you walk me through kind of the progression of the, of the comp models that you have experimented with? What's worked? What hasn't? Sure. Uh, the first guy uh, back in that, if you can remember back then, we didn't have an, or, uh, an SEO presence, so we didn't have a ton of inbound leads, but we had some. But I knew it would still be a long it will be a, a long lead time initially. So that guy, we did put on a draw. Um, it was a six-month draw. It was a nominal draw that he had, they would have to pay back once his once he start, once his growth started kicking in. But his basic comp plan was straight, other than that draw, it was straight commission. And it was based on percentage of revenue um, for business he brought in. So if he sourced a property, he would get 25% of revenue. And for us, that was basically three fees, leasing, management, and renewal fees. He would get 25% of that revenue for the first year we had that property. If we retained it for year two and year three, that would drop down from 25% down to 15% for year two. 5% for year three, and it would drop off after year four. The pros of that were that he was incentivized not just to get business, but to keep it. So he did have some incentives to, you know, if a client reaches out six or eight months in and isn't happy, he has an incentive to go talk to the property manager, work it out, communicate with the client, uh, that kind of thing. And it wasn't just, you know, get it in the door and uh, burn insurance type situation. So that, that was the pro. Um, the, the pro too was I was trying to attract a hunt, what I call a hunter gatherer type, somebody who came from medical sales or uh, medical, you know, medical equipment sales, something like that, who is a seasoned salesperson, used to the eat what you kill environment, um, who could go, who could go out and get business. And so 
in my mind, that person needed a big upside. And so the 25%, 15%, 5% model was the right one for him at the time because it, it gave him like, hey, by the time year three gets here, I'll have my trails from year one, year two, plus what I've done this year. And you know, he can see himself making a buck, a buck 50. And that's what this guy wanted and needed. And so I think it was the right model at the time. Um, about three years into it, he was making a buck 50, uh, which I then realized was a little too much uh, for that position in our market compared to what other folks are paying in other markets and based on the value he was bringing. So a lot of folks back then were doing just the 25% year one and then it dropped off. Um, and that probably would have brought this guy back into like the $80,000, $90,000 range, which wasn't enough for him. Um, so that was a talk about painful situation to work through. This guy who's been here three years plus, done a good job for the most part, wasn't perfect. Um, but you know, trying to rework his compensation plan w- w- just wasn't going to work. And he was, he realized it and I realized it. This caused, you know, just the discussions of this started making me realize that he maybe wasn't the best culture fit at this time. Um, and so it, it brought it to a head more or less. And we decided to go mutually to go our separate ways. Um, so that was the first biz dev uh, person we had. I think back something early on that I learned from a mentor. I had a mentor that talked to me about the story of Michael Malkin or Michael Milken, whatever his name was, the guy that came up with the concept of junk bonds. You, you remember what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. The story was essentially not that the junk bond scheme was actually some criminal scheming enterprise, but rather that he had structured a financial instrument, which you know, like any financial instrument, as long as sufficient warrants of the quality are given, it is what it is. People can buy um, with with eyes wide open. But where he got hung up was that the terms that he had made with his employer gave him a very generous commission on the sales of that product. And he freaking blew it out when he started selling that product. And they got really un- unhappy with how much money they were paying him. Because You have two philosophies. One philosophy says, hey, I'll pay you an unlimited sum of money based on unlimited production of value. The other philosophy says, you know, honestly, at the point that you're getting paid twice as much as I am, I'm probably going to get pissed off and pretty crabby, you know, maybe, maybe have some regret about the entire sort of thing. So in your situation, how do you think about the value that would have been necessary for that guy to create to make a buck 50 worth it? Talk, talk to me through that. Yeah, that's a good question. So, Lots of factors at play here. The first factor being that when we started, he started, we had no SEO presence, and he was bringing more business to the table uh, himself organically. He That's business we would not have gotten if he hadn't found it. But by the end of this, his three-year run, we've now been in business six years, and we are now dominating SEO in our market, and we're getting tons of inbound leads. So by that point, he wasn't working that hard to get the business. It was just flying in the door. Um, and so in order to to, like in my opinion, warrant that 150 grand annual income, he was, he needs to do something above and beyond what an inbound person could do. He would need to go out and and build uh, long term relationships with what I call uh, savvy investors, folks that have 20, 30, 40 plus single family homes, folks we were getting into multifamily, then folks that were buying multifamily that were more financially savvy and wanted to go over performers and budgets and things like that, and that wasn't his bag, and so. If I was going to pay him 150, you know, the way I see it, he needed to bring instead of 300 units a year as his goal, he needed to be bringing a thousand units a year. It's kind of how I viewed it. I could get 300 units a year from an 80 grand guy. I mean, I mean, that's a little sounds a little harsh, but that's the, the truth of the matter. So part of what I hear you saying is that he wasn't willing to lean in on really becoming a, a subject matter expert, learning the language and developing the discipline necessary to land those higher tier clients. That's right. Yep. And 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 he. Again, back to the culture fit, he wasn't willing to embrace technology, and that's the way we were moving. He wasn't willing to change and adapt and grow. 
And he started, he start, even though I thought the, the comp model would incentivize him to only only source stuff that we would keep uh, one and two and three years uh, down the road, he was starting to kind of just sign anything and jam, jam it in the, you know, throw it in the door with little or no regard to what happened after that. And so uh, that wasn't working for us either. So it was a combination of all those things. All right. So now let's talk about the second guy. So, so how did the first experience impact your second BDM hire? Um, it impacted because I wanted to make sure I had a better culture fit. Somebody who's going to care about the customer post, you know, closing, I guess, if you will, um, and not just get not just get them in the door. I wanted to understand the, I guess, the sensitivity analysis more or less on if the person did X, two X, or three X in, in number of units, what they would make, and what was realistic based on the incoming volume. Um, and because we had more SEO, of an SEO presence, this person needed to be less of an outbound guy, more of an inbound person. So somebody who's more organized and who could. Uh, who could respond to all these leads quickly and efficiently and set appointments and keep them and, and that kind of thing. So all that factored into who we hired next. Got it. Makes sense. All right. So as you kind of went through that process, were you expecting this new person to do the same sorts of activities that the old person was doing, but just have a comp model that was more aligned with those activities? Or was that, were you wanting to see the mix of inbound versus outbound change? Um, in a, to be perfectly honest, I pictured him being inbound, 80% outbound, 20%, because A, we need, it was less of a need for the outbound because of our SEO presence, but also because we had now splintered off and had a uh, full-blown multifamily division. And so those leads that were going to my old person were now going to a different person who was more skilled in multifam and performance and budgeting. So now this now this position didn't, didn't need this financial savvy anymore. They just needed to really close the incoming leads more or less. And so by diverting the more savvy leads to the multifam side, it, it left us position that was um, more inbound in nature. So when you think about the acquisition cost, do you have a customer acquisition cost target in mind for what you're trying to hit that factors in your, your sales labor? Um, to be perfectly honest, that's that I am bad at knowing that number. I know that we have studied it when we said his comp model, but that was three years ago. And so I don't remember what that is. Like I know what we can pay per door for acquiring a business. Um, I bet I don't know what we pay like, you know, marketing costs, uh, including his labor now per door. So sorry. So, hey, hey, no way. You know what? Honest admission, man. I appreciate the honesty. I I think that's where most folks are at. But let's just riff on what you just said. What is the difference between what what you would pay for a door versus what you would pay through organic acquisition, factoring in sales, labor, et cetera? Why do you think there is such a wild variability in what people are willing to pay for a door versus what they're paying for a lead gained through sales marketing? Um. So I I am a firm believer that if you're gonna pay you know for one unit or pay for twenty units in, in your own market it's not much difference what you should pay per door but if you're gonna buy um, in a new market something like hundred to two hundred units or more um, you're you're getting more with that purchase possibly um, for example we bought two companies in Fredericksburg which is another market for us I may be willing to pay more there because without Starting there with that critical mass, I would never get to a thousand units there because I, I wouldn't get to even one. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't enter a new market from scratch anymore. So by that creates a new opportunity, that creates a new market that wasn't there before. So that's one reason. Second, maybe you're getting something with it. You're getting um, an existing brand name, or you're getting a website with some SEO, or you're getting some staff or some talent, some expertise in house. So that 
to me, you know, you have, you have to understand what you're buying. You have to be able to put a value on what you're buying. And so that's why I'm willing to pay more for, if you're going to sell me 250 units in a new market, I might be paying willing, willing to pay more per door there um, than if you said, hey, I'll give you 250 units in Richmond um, because I would have a crack at those 250 units with or without this purchase. Um, but with the, the out-of-town purchase, I would not have a crack at those units. So, so does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think that does make sense. I mean, I think on the flip side, it relates to risk aversion. So there's a set price, a set market price, and increasingly more clarity on the market rate being set for buying doors through an acquisition. Whereas on the sales marketing side, A, it's ambiguous. There are no real standards for what people should spend. And B, people just tend to hedge. And I see that hedge come out really clearly when we walk through the verbal exercise of what a contract is worth, right? If I ask somebody on a customer service, level, how long do you keep a property management contract for? The number that they give is like, oh, five plus years. I've had clients for 20 years. But when you ask them to develop a customer acquisition cost target that is predicated upon an average customer lifetime value, they're like, well, you know, let's just assume that these customers are only going to stay for a year. They're much more risk averse when trying to factor it in on that level. And I think in large part, that just comes from growth being more of an aspiration than a priority. If your ultimate mandate is growth, then you're going to figure it out. You're going to you're going to do the math and you're going to bet on the math. That's what bigger companies like the Runners Warehouses of the world, increasingly companies like Real Property Management, etc., are leaning towards is doing the math and actually m- making a, a bet on it. But what I wanted to the other thing I wanted to ask you about was discounting. This came up, and I'm going to read a question to you that got sent in to me from a customer recently. I replied, gave my feedback, but I wanted to hear how you would handle this same question. And the question is this, if I'm paying my BDM to get new business and I'm paying them a normal salary plus commission, I need some suggestions on ways to align the commission such that they feel equal pain to me when they discount. For instance, let's say I'm paying a $250 commission for a new door, but that presupposes I'm getting a full month's leasing commission and a half month's renewal fee and a standard management fee of what X percent, whatever it is. I want my staff to have some flexibility in negotiating fee structures based on different property types and values, but I also have to factor in any kind of a discount. So if they start heavily discounting, it's really going to negatively impact me and I have to find a way to make sure that they have skin in the game. Do you have any ideas on how to make this happen? Yes. So a couple ways to approach this. Number one, uh, option A is don't offer discounts. <laughs> so like go no haggle pricing like you do like like CarMax. And so that's pretty much what we do now. My Now my new biz dev guy gets a flat fee per door regardless if it rents for 800 bucks or 3000 bucks a month. He can't bend on his pricing. He just can't. So now there are some exceptions. If somebody has 20 units or more, that can be negotiated a bit and he has to just get approval from his supervisor. And that supervisor has uh, his budget, that he's, his P&L he's responsible for. So that person has to sign off that he, he would suffer um, you know, if we were to cut it too low, for example, and hurt his profitability. So that, that's one option. And another option is um, like my first comp model for my guy, you know, he would, he would have a percentage of the revenue. Um, and so he was incentivized to make that percent, that revenue as high as possible. I, I'm not sure I love discounting often. I just, it just, if you're going to, if you're going to bend once, why not bend every time? It's I like a being a service that people are willing to pay for B setting a fair price. 
and making it very simple. This is our price, take it or leave it, and 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 keeping that process real similar. And if you start negotiating, then that's going to slow down. Every, it's going to it's going to encourage haggling. It's going to slow down the sales process. Um, your your guy's going to have six calls to close a deal versus one <laughs> um, or two. And so uh, that would be my advice. Yeah, I think there's definitely some good counsel in that. You know, my take on it is that discounting on the management fee is is always the last thing you want to do. Discount on any of the one-time fees versus the recurring, but also standardize the process. So just so I understand, you're saying for for one guy that walks in the door with one property and it's a nice property, you're saying that your BDM has no uh, flex room on, on price in that situation, no matter how hard this guy tries to haggle? Correct. Yeah, we have a tiered system. So the pricing is not the same for a house that rents for 800 versus a house that rents for 3000 But whatever box that fits in, in our matrix, that's the price. And it's a fair price. And, and yeah, there, it, it's I, I wouldn't go any lower than that. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I think it's a great starting point. So my, my basic answer here was, first off, don't discount on the management fee period. And if you're going to discount on anything else, just set a ratio of what comes out of that guy's pocket. So that ratio could be dollar per dollar. He discounts one buck, his commission is reduced by a dollar, or it could be a dollar or 50 cents, whatever it is. But on the whole, I think you're right. Just not discounting period is a great way to go. Only discounting based on does this person have a large portfolio, et cetera. And even in those scenarios, you could standardize it, right? You could imagine an Excel spreadsheet that allows you to enter how many doors this guy has, average rent of the properties, et cetera, and kind of factor in the max discount that could be ascertained based on that. And honestly, if you did that, that could be a calculator on your website. The point is that by standardizing the process, you're not incentivizing people to get ad adversarial, which is for better, for worse, what that negotiation process feels like. And it also, it does enable your BDM to say the answer is no. And, and that's that I don't feel bad. I'm not guilted. Um, I like yeah. it. Now your, 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 your advice about standardizing is absolutely crucial. I think that's a, I think people get wrong is they, they treat their business like a small business. They're usually getting one to five new clients a month. And so you can have time to haggle and discuss and talk about and argue with your staff, if you will. But you know, if you're trying to get 25 new ones a month, you can't have that. It needs to be seamless. They need to know exactly what the pricing is. They need to push the button and go without you being involved. And so, um, yeah, you need to build your systems for scale. And I think that does kind of relate to the boutique sort of thing. In a boutique situation, this is money you're going to eat. And the truth is, yeah, you could stand firm, but you could not. You could have a little more money in your pocket. You know, that, that temptation and that more moral resolve is more frequently tested. I want to move on to the rapid fire section of the interview. We're quickly going to go through a set of questions that I ask every attendee. And the first question is this, how much is too much to pay for a new property management contract. So when let's say we were factoring in sales labor, marketing labor, et cetera, give me your guttural response on, on the number of where you think you would tap out and you would say, this is the line we can't cross. Uh, 650 bucks. 650. Yeah. All right, break that, break that down. What What's your thought behind that number? Um, just some quick dirty math on what a, the lifetime value of a contract. Even though we don't study it well at our firm, I've seen you and uh, Alex do it quite a bit, and I know it's it's at least that. <laughs> so, okay, so, yeah. uh, so how does that pair up against the price of what you would pay pay for a door? Let's it's say about a thousand. Some, about a thousand. Yeah. Okay, so so three fifty delta there. Yeah, that's interesting. Yep, and that, that, okay. that that's quick and dirty. That's not a lot of science science in that. It's quick and dirty instinct. 
All right. So next question is, who do you learn from? Clearly, you do have the entrepreneurial mindset. I know you network with people within the industry. When you think about the folks that have kind of influenced, that you listen to, et cetera, who are some names that come to mind? Uh, locally, a guy named Sean Boyer, who started a company called Snag a Job here. He's kind of like my local business hero. Big Mark Cuban fan. Big, I'm becoming a big Sam Zell fan. He's my new kind of uh, man crush. Sam Zell, uh, equity office guy. He's a real estate guy, but he's done. He's been involved in a lot of things. He just wrote a book called "Am I Being Too Subtle?" Anybody in real estate should read that. It's a fascinating tale of kind of his journey. Got it. All right. So this guy looks like he's got some tycoon type qualities here. All right. I'll, <laughs> he I'll definitely be be checking that out afterwards. Next question is books. Are you a reader? If so, are there any books on your short list of ones that have had an impact on you? Yeah, I love business biographies. The one I just mentioned, Sam Zell is the most recent. But I mean, I, anybody that I'm kind of fascinated with business-wise, I'll read their autobiography, be it Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Ted Turner, uh, the Koch brothers, like Bezos and and Zuckerberg, and uh, I mean, the list goes on. So hey, all, don't don't forget Elon, man. Uh, yeah, Elon, Peter Thiel, all the PayPal mafia, the, all those folks. Yeah. <laughs> nice, the PayPal Mafia. Nice reference. All right. So, next question is What is the number one thing? If you could d- distill it down to one thing that you see property management entrepreneurs doing wrong, i.e., a way that they're getting in their own way, what comes to mind for you? Mm, uh, thinking small and not building for scale. Like, not, you know, a, a, any process you do, you, your company needs to be able to do it effortlessly, you know, a thousand times a year. And so, it should be built to such. And, uh, um, so yeah, it's not just thinking small, not building for scale. Last question. I ask everybody this Duke Dodson, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? Mm, I'd say, uh, 70% born, 30% bred. Oh man. Another <laughs> fence rider. <laughs> <laughs> but if I had to pick one, I would say born, but, uh, I think, I think nurture and environment can, can play a part in it. But, uh, yeah, I think you kind of, in that regard, you're, you're more, you are what you is, what you is, is what I like to say. Yeah, there you go. All right, my man. Well, hey, it's been great. I appreciate you coming through. If folks want to learn more, if they want to see what you're up to, where can they go online? Um, DotsonPropertyManager.com. And then we're on, uh, we're on Facebook. And our new website's coming out in a month, so, so check that out when it hits. But doing more consulting now for property managers around the country so they can uh, find us on the website. And we're happy to help on the um, single-family or multifamily consulting side. Love it. Awesome. Definitely check it out, DodsonPropertyManagement.com. These guys are hustling, doing some content marketing. I'm looking at the website right now. I see some of these videos. You guys have definitely upped the production quality there. I like it. Well, hey, I appreciate you taking the time. It was great talking with you. I think folks are going to get a lot out of this. I'll see you on the flip side, Duke. Okay, buddy. See you next week. Later.